those goddamn kids. <laughs> In the last two bonus episodes, you heard some interesting stories about Jack and Meg White's touring escapades in 2000 that we just couldn't fit into season two. But today, in the last bonus episode of the season, we have a couple of stories about other bands, one of which has never been told before. Don't worry, though. They are about other bands, but you'll see how everything connects soon enough. In this bonus episode of Striped, the story of the White Stripes. The first of the two stories today involves a band that, in 2020, feels like they've been a near-constant presence in pop culture for the last quarter century. But back in 2000, things looked a lot different. And a lot more precarious. That band is Weezer. The band had been in hibernation for, like, two-plus years, pretty much. That's Carl Koch. He's Weezer's archivist and sort of the unofficial fifth member of the band. Carl's been around since the earliest days of the band, documenting just about everything for him. He's more or less Weezer's Ben Blackwell. Now, this hibernation he's talking about was the result of a few unrelated factors, but a big one involved their second record, Pinkerton. Now, Weezer blew up in 1994 in the strength of their hook-laden, power-pop-tinged Blue album because it really stood out against all the moody grunge acts that were on top of the charts at the time. It was nerdy, idiosyncratic, wistfully fun, and it had an all-time classic video by Spike Jones that got massive MTV airplay. And that meant expectations were pretty lofty for their sophomore album. But instead of doubling down on the Blue Album sound, Weezer went in a darker direction. So when they released Pinkerton in 1996, both fans and the media were caught off guard a bit, and the record fizzled because of it. Now for comparison... The Blue Album went double platinum one year after it came out. But Pinkerton didn't get to platinum status until 20 years after it came out. Long story short, it was a flop. And it really got, you know, Rivers, the singer, down, and he went back to school. And we kind of assumed that, like, you know what? The label doesn't like us anymore. They're probably going to drop us. Meanwhile, Rivers was having trouble coming up with material he wanted to use. So it wasn't looking too, it was looking kind of grim for a while. But then, as Carl says here. After a couple of years of kind of like flailing, uh, management called up the band and said, you know, we've got this offer for you guys to come play Summer Sonic in Japan. And it's a massive offer. And we'd be idiots if we don't do it, especially after having done almost nothing for two years. And so the idea was, okay, for this, in the summer of 2000, we have to get our shit together, basically. And we'll play shows. And they weren't going to do anything massive initially. I mean, hell, Weezer didn't even know if anybody would show up after what happened with Pinkerton. So they started booking some really small shows. And to lower the stakes further, they wouldn't even play as Weezer at all. They'd do it as goat punishment. Yeah, I don't know either. But apparently, goat punishment was an old standby. The name goat punishment originally came up a couple years prior. We had a a new bass player uh, named Mikey Welsh who uh, Rivers had met in Boston when he was going to Harvard. And I think Mikey came up with the name. They were looking for a name, like what could be a good, absurd name for t- to do shows that, you know, so people don't know it's Weezer. And they did two shows 
uh, doing covers back in like early, late 97, early 98. They did an all Nirvana set that was all bleach stuff. And they did an all Oasis set. And those were under goat punishment. So in both cases, like there wasn't a lot of people there. Nobody really understood it was Weezer until the show was already started. Since this was back in the olden days of the internet, information wasn't getting around as fast. People still had no clue at this point who or what goat punishment was. So Weezer would do the goat punishment thing all over again, playing a handful of tiny shows just to get in shape for this Japanese festival. But while Weezer's busy trying to book all those little gigs, things get more complicated. Somebody from the Warp Tour said, we really want Weezer to play the Warp Tour this summer. So all of a sudden, our little like operation of going in a van and cruising around and doing these little shows turned into, well... Now we're going to take our little van and trailer and park next to the buses at the Warp Tour for a couple of weeks and do these shows. Which means now they're prepping for Warp Tour while also trying to book all these other secret shows. That means they have to move a bunch of stuff around and take a little longer to button down the entire tour itinerary. Regardless, though, they get on the road, they start doing the Warp Tour gigs, they do some of the smaller stuff sprinkled in, and all the while, they're really amped to do a secret show at Spaceland in L.A., and the idea here is that it'd be a homecoming of sorts. And also, at this point, word started to get around that maybe this goat punishment band was actually Weezer. So it was probably going to be a good show. There was only one small problem. The timing was poor and that Spaceland was already booked. The White Stripes had, um, through their ace booking agent, Dave Kaplan, placed a hold and booked the White Stripes to play Spaceland. So this is like the proper L.A. show. And I don't know who convinced who to try to get the White Stripes to, you know, change their deal that night because I don't, I'm not sure who on our end was like insisting. It might have been management to like insist, like, you know, we got to get on this show. We got to get on the show. And then I got a call from Mitchell Frank, who ran the club. And that's ace booking agent Dave Kaplan again, who you heard from earlier in the season. Going, Weezer wants to do an underplay on the date you're booked. Can we move the date? And I'm like, I can't. I'm routed. It's, it's sad and stone. He goes, well, how about if they if they can open for Weezer? Never was there this understanding, I think, amongst the band that like there was already a band playing that night that we never heard of. It was like, it, it couldn't have been more rude when you think about it. I was like, oh, of course we can play it. Like, wait, there's another band playing? Oh, oh, now what do we do? You know, <laughs> like it was like, I don't think there's any real awareness until like almost the last minute that like, oh, oh, I see. Spaceland's booked that night. Well, can we play anyway? To make up for that rudeness of uh, asking the White Stripes to give up their headlining spot and be an opener, Weezer was prepared to offer a sweet deal, though, saying, We'll be happy to give the band, the, the White Stripes, we'll give them $300 to open for Weezer. And, like, that was probably, like... What their, what their guarantee was going to be anyways on a weeknight in L.A. So like, fuck yeah, we'll open for Weezer and get paid $300? This is fucking awesome. Easy, right? Eh, not so fast. There's one more wrinkle. <laughs> and the promoter called back is like, Weezer has this other band that they want to be direct support, so Weezer will pay you $500 to go on first of three. And at that point, it was like, I recall it being like, holy shit, we're getting $500 <laughs> to play this in the show. That might have been the highest guarantee of the whole tour. 
as first of three at Spaceland. It, 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 almost like a sympathy payment because Weezer's like co-opting the gig. It was bonkers. So this was before everyone knew that Weezer had this underground cult following. Like, I think this is when like Weezer figured it out. So Spaceland holds like 300 people maybe. And there's 300 people inside. Brendan Benson's there. Brendan Benson's recording what would ultimately turn into Lapalco in LA at the time. I think he has, he's renting a house and like Gina Davis is his next door neighbor or something. Brendan like finagles his way in somehow. Like we didn't have any guest list spots. We only had two guest list spots and like he finagled in like his friend or something like that. Like I was impressed. Like didn't seem like they should just be randomly letting people into this Weezer show. Um, I've got a flyer for the show. Remember a whole wall at Space Line was covered in these flyers and I grabbed one when I walked in to like set up stuff. And then like when I walked out, all the flyers were on like every Weezer fan pulled one of these. And it's hilarious because if you look online, I think I'm the only person that kept it or posted it on live. I don't know. Um, Weezer, other star people, and the White Stripes. And that's the story of how Weezer literally stole the show from the White Stripes. At the same time that Weezer started to realize maybe Pinkerton wasn't a flop, and that maybe, just maybe, there'd be a future for him after all. But even then, nobody would have guessed that this show, at a tiny venue in L.A., would host two of the biggest rock bands of the last 25 years. Now, you might remember earlier in the season, when the White Stripes went to New York for the first time to open for Slater Kinney, they had a night off, so they booked a headlining show. Now, what we didn't talk about is that also on the bill for this extra New York date was a brand new band playing their very first show called the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs. And it turns out that if it wasn't for this show, the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs might not be the band we know today. And here's guitarist Nick Zinner talking a little bit about that. You know, Karen and I had written a bunch of songs and told everyone that, you know, we were the best band in New York. Uh, actually, I think we were saying that before we even wrote new songs. Um, but uh, we wrote a bunch of songs with a drum machine, and then we had a few practices, you know, with like a keyboard player and a, and a different drummer. And I remember like the, I think like the week before this show that our friend Dave Burton kind of off, offered to us because he, he was friends with Dave Kaplan, the start start booking agent. Um, you know, we had a few a few practices with, with our friend Rennie playing drums. And the week that week before the show, she said she couldn't do it because she was in like three other bands and had a conflict. So I remember like Karen had said that, you know, her friend Brian Chase, who she went to school with for a year, had just moved to New York and that he could do it. So we, we just had one practice with him, maybe like a few days before, and it was like, okay, he'll, he'll be fine just to, you know, to play this, <laughs> this one show, he's great. And then, um, you know, that, 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 in addition to our first show, it was kind of like really our, you know, our second time playing with, with Brian as, as, as a trio. And we, I mean, at the time, like Karen and I also had this, this kind of 
disco song um, acoustic project called Unitard, um, which is like um, more like spooky ballads kind of kind of feel like her playing acoustic guitar and me playing slide guitar and I, I remember like like Karen and I talking about this from like right before she she mentioned Brian I was like I was like no we should just do Unitard like I don't know this guy <laughs> and uh, she was like no trust me he's great let's let's just try it and, and we'll do it as yeah he has so as was the case most often she was right See, if it wasn't for this show, who knows what the lineup for the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs would have been, or if they ever would have settled on one at all. So could you say that you have the white stripes to thank for the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs? I'll let you decide. All right, that's all we've got for the last bonus episode of Striped, the story of the White Stripes, season two. I want to say a special thanks to Ben Blackwell, Ben Swank, and the rest of the Third Man crew. We get production assistance from Mark Charles, Kojin Tashiro, and Melissa Locker. And additional scoring in this episode is by Lone Wolf Gang. The biggest thanks of all, though, goes to the White Stripes themselves, Jack and Meg White. Because without them, none of this would be possible. And we've also put together companion playlists for seasons one and two of Striped, so you can hear a lot of the bands and songs mentioned in the show, and maybe discover your next big musical obsession. You can find those playlists on your preferred streaming platform or by perusing the Third Man social channels. I'm your host and producer, Sean Cannon. See you next time. Side. Oh, let me let me interrupt you because you're t- you're clearly Wilco fan. Um, part of this is weird that I'm just telling Jack stories that he's told me, but he might never tell these stories someday. So part of this is my job of retelling. Um, when he was in Goober and the Peas, um, they would play Lounge Acts, which is Sue Miller's club that she owned. Sue Miller married to Jeff Tweedy, and so they stayed at Jeff and Sue's house. This is Jack is like 19 years old. And to hear Jack describe it, he gets put in a room that is literally filled with guitars, including the being there guitar, you know, all that stuff. And uh, he's about to like lay down, go to sleep, whatever. And Jeff opens the door and says, don't touch any guitars. <laughs>